that is the energy that I strive for is to be accused of witchcraft, not once, but twice, and then to nope right out of that situation. Hello, welcome to 10 Cent Takes, the podcast where we take it upon ourselves to vengeance kill concepts, one issue at a time. My name is Jessica Frazier, and I'm joined by my co-host, the tornado of tidbits, Mike Thompson. I think that may be my favorite nickname you've come up with for me. <laughs> nice. It's That's a, a good one. It's, it's a fun one. Like it's it. very... Very descriptive, truly descriptive of yourself. <laughs> I am a storm of vengeance when the mood strikes me. <laughs> well, if you are new around here, the purpose of this podcast is to study comic books in ways that are both fun and informative. We want to look at their coolest, weirdest, and silliest moments, as well as examine how they're woven into the larger fabric of pop culture and history. Yeah, and if you're enjoying the show so far and you want to help us grow, it's a huge help if you can rate or review us on platforms like Apple Podcasts or Podchaser or Good Pods because that really helps with discoverability. And we're pretty new to it, but if you haven't heard about Good Pods, it's this really cool new podcast app that actually feels like a social network all on its own. But the cool thing about it is that it's got all these really incredible features that let you find new shows based on what other people in your network are listening to. And the whole focus is really on helping indie podcasts like ours. There's a whole feature where you don't just assign one rating for the overall show itself. You actually can rate individual episodes. And so you can repeatedly provide support that way to your favorite podcasts. And likewise, we'd love to have you join our little community on social media. You can find us as uh, Tencent Takes on every major platform. This episode, we're continuing on with our book club, reading through the Sandman series. Our prior conversations have covered two volumes at a time, and we highly recommend you check out those prior episodes if you haven't already. Those are episode 15 for volumes one and two, Episode 17 for Volumes 3 and 4, Episode 19 for Volumes 5 and 6, and Episode 21 for Volumes 7 and 8. Now, our final two volumes hold a lot of really pertinent content, so in an effort to give these volumes the time they deserve, we've decided to break this up a little further and just talk about Volume 9 in this episode. So we'll be covering Volume 10 and wrap up our final thoughts overall about the series in episode 25 so check back in for that yeah a big part of this is because volume 9 is just so long it has so much ground to cover and then volume 10 it also has a lot of ground to cover but it's more the emotional weight conveyed within that final volume where they're saying their goodbyes and we want to talk about that a little bit more yeah and I mean, yes, volume nine is a veritable chonker. So, yeah. Now, before we dive into our main topic, what is one cool thing that you've read or watched lately? Oh, uh, you're going to laugh. So I've been getting comic recommendations on Hoopla because that's pretty much all I read on the app. And it recently suggested the 2018 Jetsons miniseries from DC Comics. <laughs> what? 
Yeah. It, okay, so DC did a bunch of really interesting and often really fun comics based on the classic Warner Brothers cartoons, which is this absolutely massive catalog these days. And it makes sense that they would plumb that because DC is part of the Warner Brothers umbrella, although that's all up in the air right now because of corporate splits and mergers and acquisitions. So I think AT&T Warner Brothers is like doing some weird thing where they're splitting off like the content division into something new with Discovery. I don't know. It's weird and I hate it. (laughs) But anyway, there's a lot of content that they can mine for new comic books. So like around this time, like after 2015, there was suddenly this huge flood of comic books with stuff from like Looney Tunes and Hanna-Barbera over, you know, a couple of years. And so they were really great comics like the Flintstones and Scooby Apocalypse. There was a whole bunch of Looney Tune comics. And one of the best things that I've ever read is this one shot with Batman and Elmer Fudd. I cannot begin to describe how cool it is. But somehow I never I never heard about this Jetsons comic. And so the volume is on Hoopla and I started reading it last night. I'm about halfway through and it's really an interesting update to the franchise. Like the earth this is set on is a world that had a couple of ecological disasters and basically it's now water world where like everything is just under this giant flood. Okay. And then humanity is living in floating cities that hover above the oceans. And I'm enjoying it so far. It's not as silly as the cartoon was, but it's interesting and fun and it's a really thoughtful take while staying relatively true to the source material. Very nice. Does he still work in like a cog factory? Uh, I think he's a mechanic for like, you know, hover cars or something. And then... That makes sense. Yeah, and then this time, the robot Rosie this time around, as opposed to being like a factory model, you know, made, is Uh actually George's mom. She had her brainwaves copied over to it as she was at the end of her life because she was like, you know, 100 plus. Oh, wow, that's wild. Yeah. I'm enjoying it so far, but it's available on Hoopla, like, you know, almost everything great that I'm reading these days. Aw, we love Hoopla. Yep, Hoopla and Libby are two excellent resources for reading comic books affordably. In fact, they often get stuff before they actually hit the shelves, too. It's interesting. I remember reading that Batman 3 Jokers comic before it was collected and sold in shops. Oh, wow. That's kind of cool. There's also, there's so much good stuff out right now. Like we're recording this at the end of December and Hawkeye is on and Spider-Man Far From Home just dropped. But yeah, the Jetsons, the Jetsons is where it's at right now. (laughs) We'll take it back. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. What about you? So I'm, I'm once again going to preface this with the fact that I'm egregiously behind in my media consumption. But I finally started watching The Witcher, so I'm a few, nice. like, I think I'm halfway through the first season. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm really enjoying it. Yennefer is a fucking badass and a really interesting character, so I'm interested to see what trajectory her character takes. But the overall concept of the show is cool, the plotline is interesting, and it has me interested to actually check out some of The Witcher comics, which I've started perusing online, but I haven't yet opened, so... Yeah, I think they're from Dark Horse, right? I think. I can't remember. I just briefly, I I wanted to double check because I I thought there were comics and I just, I validated that there were, but I didn't really go too deep into it. 
I mean, the funny thing is The Witcher was originally a series of novels from Russia, and then the video games came out and wound up being massively popular. And then they made the TV show, and they've got an animated series now with Netflix as well. Um, I am a bad gamer. I worked in the industry for almost a decade, and I still have not played any of The Witcher video games. <laughs> and I hear they're great. I hear that they're just fantastic. I just haven't gotten around to it. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was going to ask if if there was like a particular reason, but I mean, no. there's you know time. Yeah, I uh, I have a family and dogs and a job and hobbies. Wait a second, you have too much of a life. Yeah. Goodness. Yeah. Ugh. The curse of adulthood. It's highly relatable. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? Do you think we should move on to uh, talking about the Sandman Volume Nine? Oh, I'm, I better I'm kind be of ready like... for this. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, like I'm just I'm kind of like circling it, and I don't really want to engage right now. It's just it's so long. It is so long. I know. All right. Well, no, you know what? Let Band-Aid. Let's just let's just rip it off. Let's get into it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so volume nine is titled The Kindly Ones and was originally published in single magazine form as The Sandman 57 through 69 and Vertigo Jam 1 in 1993, 94, and 95, illustrated by Mark Hempel, Richard Case, Disraeli, Teddy Christensen, Glenn Dillon, Charles Vess, Dean Ormston, and Kevin Nolan, and written by Neil Gaiman. There is a prior story to the official beginning of Part 1, which is called The Castle, and starts with a man having and waking up from a horrible nightmare. He falls asleep again before we cut to the library in the dream realm, where Lucian is giving the reader, aka the dreamer, a tour of the dream realm, and introducing him to a cast of the realm's characters before getting to Morpheus himself, who identifies the dreamer as being such when Lucian thought the person to be one of Morpheus's guests. Morpheus <laughs> agrees to show the dreamer around until the dreamer is awakened by his wake-up call in the hotel and chalks it up to being just a dream. Yeah, and the tour of the dreaming is all from a first-person perspective, which is interesting. And honestly, I think it's just a very odd placement to include it in this volume at this point, because it doesn't, you know, we're if we're on volume nine, we've theoretically been reading the series up till this point, and we know these characters, we know the settings. Yeah, exactly. I agree. Well, part one, the real part one, starts off with the three fates weaving the life of someone and having tea, and deciding when to cut the end of the yarn. Cut to Hippolyta, who is having an absolute meltdown because she finds sand in Daniel's bed after his nap, even though he's been nowhere near sand. She reveals to her friend Carla, who is over, that there are also little frogs who had gotten in and invaded the house, and she wasn't sure how. She loses it on an old man who is trying to give Daniel a flower on the way to get ice cream, and actually assaults him, which is pretty intense. Yeah, and so we should actually take a moment to note that Hippolyta 
has been showing up throughout the series, as has her son, Daniel. And mm-hmm. Hippolyta is a hero originally from DC Comics. She was involved with Hector Hall, who was Dr. Fate at the time. And she operated as a superhero called Fury, who, like, that actually plays in later on. But she was part of the Wonder Woman mythology, so she was tied to, like, Greek mythology in general. Oh, that's right. No, you're right. I recognized the name, and I didn't know if it was actually tied. So, like, because there's Queen Hippolyta, and then it's very convoluted and weird. I don't know a lot of it other than what I've read on Wikipedia. You know, it... It gets very dense and confusing, especially because I think she was originally a character from before Crisis on Infinite Earths, and then she got updated after that, and then it got all weird. Oh, okay. But then what happened was Hector, who was her husband, died, and then she and he were both brought into kind of this pocket of the dreaming by Brute and Glob, who were dreams that had gone AWOL. And then it turns out, and I learned this from listening to Comic Book Couples Counseling's Patreon episode talking about this stuff, where it turns out they had Hector Hall dressed as this, the Jack Kirby Sandman, and they were actually, in that, they were his assistants, they were his sidekicks. So for like several years, he and Lita were hanging out in this one kid's dreams, and she was pregnant the whole time, and so Daniel was basically gestating in dreams. And then there's been this weird connection between him and Morpheus and the dreaming ever since. And so when we've seen him pop up, it's things like he'll basically go wander in the dreaming on his own, which is why we're seeing things like sand show up in his crib or frogs or things like that. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's driving Lita like bananas. You know, it's interesting because she doesn't really seem to have a lot of agency in this series so far. She has, she's been a plot device, I feel like, for the most part. Yeah. And, and I'm not sure that my feelings on that change throughout this whole, this whole event. But, you know, she's also, I think, a character who's been traumatized quite a bit because her husband died and then he came back and, and she and he were living in the dreaming. And then he died again because Morpheus sent him on his way after after he pulled everyone out of this weird pocket of dreams. And she didn't get to say goodbye to him. She just knew that she was suddenly left with his baby. So she's had a rough go of it, man. Yeah, I don't I don't envy her situation, that's for no. sure. So Carla brings up a job that has been offered to Lita that she's hesitant to take and reveals that she's nervous to let anyone watch Daniel and indicates in no uncertain terms that she would kill anyone that was responsible for something happening to him. Meanwhile, back in the dream realm, Matthew was wandering around looking for Morpheus, asking some of the regular figures in the realm, like Mervyn and Nuala, who, when asked, tells Matthew that she cleans in order to have something to do, which, yikes. Yeah, you know, it's funny because like I totally forgot about Nuala's presence after Season of the Mists because it's been so. Well, she's been largely sidelined. Like she's just kind of this character who occasionally pops up, and then this is the one where she really starts to to have a a role. Well, and it's, it's obviously she's super forgettable. You even you you've told me that a couple of times now. Yeah. And the first time that we talked about her, you were like, 
oh, she's a she's a throwaway character. I don't even know if she shows up. I don't think she shows up in the rest of the the volumes. And then like yeah. <laughs> she kept like showing up, and I was like, oh, that's random. <laughs> it's yeah, <laughs> yeah, not my not my finest moment. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just mean she's very forgettable. You know, it's like I don't know that I would necessarily remember her. Yeah. Her particular storyline. When Matthew finally finds Morpheus, he is remaking the Corinthian after having destroyed his previous one. Matthew was confused about why he would remake him after the other one had gone so far off base as to try to kill him. But Morpheus explains that some dreams just need to be bad. And how there had been other ravens in the past. Matthew flies back to Eve, where instead of reporting back to her, he broods. Mm -hmm. Back in reality, Lita has finally decided to go out to meet the prospective employer for dinner. It seems to be going well. He's sleazy, but whatever. And he knows literally everything about her life, so that's not a red flag or anything. Yeah, like he's very much a smooth operator, and yeah. mm. that's the shit I hate. I would see right through that shit. Not that anybody's coming at me like that. Yeah, but no thanks. Red flag number two was him complimenting the idea of the silent waitresses they had at the restaurant and making some sexist comment about not wanting to hear women talk all the time. So love that. Yeah. Things seem to be fine until the person at the piano, who looks and has lettering suspiciously like Lucifer's, plays Rock the Boat, and Lita suddenly feels like there is something wrong at home. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed how Lucifer was suddenly, like, just chilling out, and he was like a nightclub owner. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, I just want to play music. <laughs> That's good. I like how he doesn't, like, sometimes people will request things, and he's like, that's not no. what I'm playing right now. <laughs> he's like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, he's like, mm, no, swipe left. <laughs> it's, we haven't seen him for, I think, up until this point since volume four, but he moves to LA. He opens a bar called Lux. His consort demon named Mazakine, who wears a, a half mask over her decomposed side of her face, works there. And then he often plays the piano. This becomes like the central setting for his own series that Mike Carey started to write shortly after the Sandman ended. Oh. But, yeah. Um, That's pretty cool. So Lita calls home when she feels that there's something wrong, but there's no answer. So she has her prospective boss rush her home only to find that Daniel is gone. Mm hmm. Part two starts back at Lita's place, where Carla has taken charge and is trying to get in touch with the police about Daniel's kidnapping. Lita is in shock and explains to the officer that arrives that the babysitter was asleep, and that the reason the door was jacked up was because she had busted it to get in to check on Daniel, but that it had been locked upon arrival. The police don't seem to have much to go on, nor hope, as they tell Carla to take care of her friend. Mm-hmm. Rolling back into the dream realm, we meet Clurican, who was at Dream's castle to see Nuala. Yeah, and Clurican, for those who don't remember, is Nuala's brother who originally gifted Nuala to Dream in Season of the Mists. Yeah. He's like, peace, sis. I got shit to yeah. do. Yeah. He's kind of a douche. 
That's nice of you to put kind of in front of that. I would argue it didn't need a didn't need the the beginning of that. I don't want a fucking fairy curse on me. Well, that's fair. He's right behind me, isn't he? So Clerican is allowed entry after the door guards confer with Morpheus under the condition that he understands that he is responsible for his own actions. And Clerican agrees to these terms and is told to stay to the path and it would lead to his sister. He immediately does the opposite as he almost right when he gets in there tries to touch a reflection of a transparent Morpheus looking person in a mirror, which turns into a cat after which Clerican spits a whole ass stag out of his mouth. And he's like bleeding all over the place in the process. Yeah. And Nuala finds him and is pissed that he didn't follow the path as instructed and that he just created his nemesis, apparently. That's how you make a nemesis. <laughs> Good to know. She also calls him out for not visiting as soon as he said he would. So Clerican tells of his adventures at the World's End Inn probably one of those, this is my excuse for not getting here so soon, and that the queen had sent him to bring Nuala home. She stated that it wouldn't be that easy, but Clerican in- insisted that he would just ask Morpheus, NPD, and that he'd ask him to defeat the stag, too. Why not? While he's at it. Well, you know, <laughs> it's one more thing. Yeah, why not? But Nuala told him that he was the only one able to defeat his nemesis, and that it was probably long gone from the dream realm by then, which sounded very foreboding. Yeah. I know the nemesis shows up again, I just can't remember where. We'll talk about it. Yeah. As I sound disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) Back in the waking world, Lita was screaming in her sleep, having a nightmare, and Carla woke her up from it, and she recounts that she, quote-unquote, woke up in her dream. And as she explains further, she recounts a meeting with three women, who we know as the Fates, who were downstairs in her house that doesn't actually have a downstairs, making some concoction with dead babies. They really love them some dead babies in this, I have to say. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, they do. Lita doesn't quite understand what's happening, which, I get it, I wouldn't either, and doesn't quite ask the right questions about Daniel, but does get info that she had already met the people that took Daniel, and that they wanted to put him in a fire, at which point she woke up screaming. After having a cup of coffee, Lita ends up laying back down. Back in the dream realm, Nuala and Clerican are looking for Morpheus, and are told by a rabbit in 1700s evening attire and a woman in a ball gown from the same era, that they need to request an audience with Morpheus in order to see him. Which, style points galore for those two. Yeah, no, they look rad. Yeah. I had definite dress envy. Actually, I would wear that suit, too. I'm not gonna lie, I'd do both. (laughs) Instead, they just drop by Morpheus's throne room, where Clerican raps loudly, then bursts in when there's no answer. And once inside, he just summons Morpheus. He's such an entitled dick. Yeah, no, he is the definition of, like, a privileged white guy. (laughs) He's like, Wolfie's not here, we'll just call him. What's the big deal? I don't get it. We've been watching the show The Great on Hulu, and he reminds me so much of 
Peter, the the czar played by Nicholas Holt, where it's just, no, like the world revolves around me. And if something doesn't go the way that I expect it to, I just ignore it. Oh my gosh, that's exactly what's happening with this dude. You are correct. (laughs) So Morpheus actually shows up and he's like, what the fuck do you want? (laughs) Yeah. And Clerican asks him first to destroy his nemesis, to which Morpheus stated, A, it's no longer in this realm, and not his problem, B. (laughs) And then Clerican asks if Nuala could go back home, stating that Titania had requested her presence back in Ferry. To Morpheus's credit, he asks Nuala what she thought about it, and she stated that she wanted whatever he wanted, which, come on. Be decisive here. Morpheus agrees that she can leave, asks if she wants to keep anything, and she says no. And he states that he owes her one boon and makes her crystal pendant the way to contact him to ask for this. Ultimately, Nuala is unhappy, stating that Morpheus didn't even fight for her, which this whole thing with Nuala having an infatuation with Morpheus, it's a little silly to me. Yeah, like. I don't know. I also don't feel like Nuala has been given enough time to really become a character that we we care about in that way. Yeah. No, I agree. She's had a number of nice, very small moments throughout the series where where we get a couple of pages with her and then she's very clearly pushed back into the background. And that's fine. But this feels like this feels like something that is forced too suddenly without without having more time to really get to know and appreciate her character. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Part three begins with a fire being started in a, in a fireplace, and with Loki telling Puck a story about tricking the stupid oaf Thor into thinking he was pregnant, with a very shitty ending. It's revealed that they are the ones who have Daniel, who is now in possession of a phoenix feather, and they put him into the fire that they've been building. They just plop him on. Yeah, so this is what Lita had the vision of. Also, Loki's whole story about Thor, it's both funny, but it's also really mean-spirited, where he basically sleeps with Thor's wife wearing Thor's shape, and it's, it's a really remarkable demonstration in one scene about just what a truly awful person Loki is. And, and how he does not care who he harms with his actions. Yeah, absolutely. So we then cut to a snowy cemetery where Hob Gadling is mourning the loss of his most recent love and recollects his prior loves and centuries of seeking companionship in all forms. Morpheus is outside of the cemetery gates when Hob leaves and states that he wants to talk to Hob. Meanwhile, Destiny is in his own realm and sees himself, which, of course, is no surprise to him. Desire had closed off its realm, making its icon black, meaning it didn't want to communicate with anyone. Despair notices the black heart, and falls further into herself, with rats running over her and biting her. Delirium has created many multicolored fish that are swimming around her in the air above her head, each singing a different song. She realizes that she had with her at one point a quote-unquote nice doggy and goes to look for him. Of course, she's talking about Barnabas. 
Yeah, like I remember reading that the first time and I was like, oh no, she lost Barnabas. What? I know. I was like, son of a bitch. Yeah, but you know what? Barnabas's one job was to hang out with her. And he's a special dog. He's not just a regular dog. So part of this is on Barnabas, I feel. I'm throwing it out there. (laughs) (laughs) I do appreciate how they wrap that up eventually. But yeah, it's like, I was just like, no, that was like, that was one of the few, like, really kind of like happy moments was when they became each other's buddies. Exactly. So yeah, I was I was really bummed coming into this to see that. So Hobbs having a drink with Morpheus, who's also talking him out of revenge and other acts in despair over his lost love. He finally states that he just wants the driver of the van that hit and killed his wife to know what a good person she was and what she meant to him. Mm-hmm. Morpheus stated that he had done so and then goes to leave, giving Hobb the distinct impression that there was something wrong. Yeah, and it's because Hobb was sitting there and basically asking like he was asking for some kind of solace and and he was like maybe I could just dream of her every night or no Morpheus says I could have you dream of her every night but I think that you wouldn't enjoy that and Hobb agrees he's like no because he he talks about how one of his other wives I think had died and how he once dreamed about her and how he then woke up and the bed was empty when he turned to talk to her and then he woke up again and it was really you know, it's one of those moments where when you lose someone close to you, that kind of story is, it hits a little too close to home. Something that Neil Gaiman does really well is he, he writes grief so believably. And, you know, um, that whole scene I thought was really good. And Hobb is a character that, that we have gotten to know and appreciate over the course of the series, as opposed to Nuala where we've seen mm-hmm. him grow as a character, where we've seen him actually become a confidant of, of dreams. And, you know, it, I also thought it was very fitting that, like, the last time that they're going to sit down together is in a bar. Like, you know, like, they've been meeting for, once, for a drink every hundred years. And I, mm-hmm. I found there's a lot of symmetry to that. And, and, I mean, that's very much what Neil Gaiman's stories often feature, is there's a lot of symmetry between earlier points and then later. And it was a great moment. Yeah, I think so, too. So Hobbs stops Morpheus in the snow outside, stating his concern that Morpheus reeks of death and that he's worried about him. That was a great line, too, where he's like, I've seen it, like, I've done it before, like, you know, I can smell death on people. And I smelled it on someone, and then within a short amount of time, he had his throat slit in an alley, and he's like, and you reek of it. Yeah, the foreshadowing is really, really heavy. Yeah. So Morpheus thanks Hob and then just disappears into the storm. We cut back to Lita, who is numb from the pain of Daniel's disappearance. She also smashes the hand of the prospective employer when he's touching her and she doesn't want him to be. So he takes off in an ambulance and she gets in a fight with Carla, who leaves upset. I didn't mind that she hurt that guy's hand. I was fine with it. He was a dickbag. No, he very clearly was putting a move on her. Like, he was very clearly putting a move Which, on her. Which, gross. Her son just disappeared, and you think that she wants to, like, do anything physical with you right now? That makes no sense. No. And this is part of the larger thing where it's very clear that she is having a break from reality due to the grief and disassociation that's coming on from the trauma. Yeah. Like, so her awareness of her surroundings and 
and what's going on is is becoming much more fragmented so we're only getting kind of like views of like certain events because it's like it's kind of skipping through time as per her perspective exactly yeah even her fight with carla wasn't like she didn't have anything concrete about what the fight was about it just was like we got into a fight carla left yeah yeah so lita can't sleep and the following morning she's visited by police officers the ones from before who tell her that they've recovered a badly burned body and they hand her an actual picture of this God, that was just so hard. That was such a hard scene. The charred corpse of an infant. Like, that's all you know. Yeah, it's... God damn. I can't imagine. Like, I'm not a mother, but I can't imagine being a mother and seeing that thinking that that's your own child. I I really can't imagine that. But here's the other thing, is that it doesn't make sense that they would sit there and show, like, I don't know what police procedures were like back in the 90s, but these days it would be like, well, we're going to like do DNA testing and other things. They're not going to sit there and bring in a mom to identify a corpse that has been burned beyond recognition or bring her a picture. Yeah, DNA was pretty, I think they started doing DNA in the 90s. So I think, you know, towards the end, they were getting really big into it, though. So it may have been a larger role, but. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. It just it wasn't the way that you would normally. And I thought that was strange as well. I thought the same thing that you did in that this doesn't seem like normal procedure. Like you would at least normally go to identify the body. You would usually go physically see it. Yeah, and so. the, the two detectives are just uh I don't know. Yeah. But we seem we'll a get into off, that later. right? Yeah. yeah. So she slams the door in the officers' faces and She remembers her conversation with Morpheus when he told her that he'd be back for Daniel. So she's wide-eyed, and if we're being honest, looking pretty unhinged when she states that she knows what she needs to do. Yeah. (laughs) She started looking pretty rough, and she just goes, ooh, downhill from there. And it's interesting because, and I'll just mention this now, it's interesting that her exterior almost just starts matching what is going on with her interior, with her brain. You know, she starts looking more and more haggard as she gets further and further down this rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. Back at Club Lux, Remiel is there looking for Lucifer. And when he finds him, he asks Lucifer if he's ever thought about going back to hell. (laughs) Hey, buddy. (laughs) You ever thought about it? Sure, you don't want to take your old job back? <laughs> hey, man, like everything's fine, but uh, if I mean, if you wanted it, if you wanted your job back, like it'd be okay, it'd be fine. <laughs> Lucifer laughs in Remiel's face at that, which was just such a reaction. I loved it. Yeah, it's great, and that's an ongoing theme with the series that Mike Carey did, Lucifer is very much like, no, I don't want to follow the orders or the whims or basically I don't want to serve anyone anymore. I don't have any desire to serve a grand design. Exactly. It was very much a resounding no. He also insults Remiel, saying that he had no backbone, to which Remiel spit in his face and rushes out, which not COVID safe these days, not. It's also a really good moment because Lucifer is like, I think you forget who you're talking to. I was the commander of God's armies. Like, I could annihilate you if I wanted to. 
but you're beneath me and I don't give a shit. So get out. And it was, I uh, really can't be bothered. Chef's kiss. (laughs) It was, it was so good. Exactly. So back in hell, Remiel recounts the story to silent Duma stating that if he wanted something to get done, he needed to go talk to Lucifer himself. Gosh, darn it. (laughs) Which fat chance. Cause he's silent in the waking world. This is a little, you know, like some of our other ones that we've seen, we're we're very much back and forth and doing some of this whiplash action <laughs> with volume nine here. So we're taken back to the waking world where Lita is sleep deprived and walking through the city, but is mentally in a dream. She meets a woman who gives her a lucky coin, quote unquote, comes across a naked Cyclops woman who talks about being cursed and a humanoid cat with an eye patch, none of whom are able to go with her on her journey. Back at the apartment, Carla enlists the help of a neighbor who happens to be Rose Walker from the doll's house. Mm-hmm. Who, it's revealed, was the babysitter that fell asleep, allowing for Daniel to be kidnapped. So she expresses her feeling of responsibility for Lita and Daniel's situation and state that she's only really in L.A. to see her terminally sick friend. Mysteriously, the police have not asked to speak to Rose, even though she was there. She was, you know, she was the person who was supposed to be watching Daniel. And the card that they gave to Carla to contact the police officers is just completely blank at this point. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's the first real serious clue where it's like, oh, there's something weird going on. Yeah, something is amiss for sure. Panning back to Lita, who arrives at a thatched roof house, a la Shakespeare in Stratford-upon-Avon, and upon entering, finds herself face-to-face with two veiled sisters named Theno and Eureli, respectively, stating that their other sister had died, that someone had cut her head off, and asking if she will be their new sister. The mortal one, apparently. <laughs> She is told that she can go out and eat the apples outside, that the sisters cannot go with her. She goes out to eat the apples and comes face to face with a three-headed serpent who warns her about eating the apples and staying with the sisters, stating maybe it's not such a great idea. She bites into the apple and the scene cuts away to reality where she's sitting in a dirty alley eating an apple out of the trash. Yeah, and this is the first concrete example that we get of like she is no longer dealing with reality as we know it yeah she is it's definitely a world all her own in the dreaming morpheus is gingerly carrying a very small pale item he opens a chest and compares the two items revealing himself to be holding two small corinthian skulls sporting sets of teeth where the eyes would be he then melds the two skulls into one Morpheus looks off into the distance and says, Storms are coming. Meanwhile, Mervyn is once again running his mouth about Morpheus to Matthew and a muscly character named Abuda, complaining about the weather. And lo and behold, Morpheus floated in right behind him during his tirade. Morpheus tried, unsuccessfully, to get philosophical about the nuance of his interconnectivity with the dreaming, it both being an extension of himself but that he was also an extension of it. He then wandered up the shore of the water, and they all watched as a young man with pale hair emerged from the waves, his eyes closed. 
Morpheus approached the man and pressed the small Corinthian skull into his forehead, bringing him to life. He thanked Morpheus for bringing him back. So Corinthian, he's back, baby. Yeah, but he's clearly been modded a bit. Yeah, he's like new Corinthian, but we'll see that it's kind of old Corinthian, but new Corinthian. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about this later on, but I really wound up enjoying his character. Part 5 brings us back to the house with the oddly veiled sisters, where Lita wakes up to see the sisters watching her admiringly. Creepy. Mm-hmm. After drinking a glass of water offered to her by the sisters, Lita panics as she starts sprouting snakes out of her head. The sisters tell her that she will continue to sprout more snakes the longer she stays, and that their previous sister had been Medusa. Lita says that she doesn't want to be one of them, and that she needs revenge for the killings of her husband and son. Back in reality, Rose is visiting and tending to Zelda. That was the terminally ill person that she had mentioned in the previous part of the comic. Yeah, and Zelda was one of the two spider ladies from the doll's house. It was her and Chantel, right? Yeah, and and unfortunately Chantel had died. Yeah. Yeah, so... And, of course, Zelda's very close to, to dying herself, unfortunately. It's revealed that Rose is spending a lot of money on taking care of Zelda, who has AIDS. And in spending time with her, Rose also finds herself rebuffing Zelda's advances. And it's very obvious that she'd already been given a pretty firm boundary by Rose a dozen times before, but she just continues to try outright to ask her for sex, which is pretty wild. It was pretty overt. Well, it's weird to read because, like, when you're that far gone from full-blown AIDS, your sex drive, from what I understand, is not really there. I don't know if it was just meant to be that she was delirious or something else, but... It was weirdly uncomfortable. And I mean, this is also from the mid 90s when the AIDS epidemic was still pretty full blown. It wasn't, I feel like it wasn't quite the unknown terror that we had of the late 80s and the early 90s, but it was still a thing that was really hitting a lot of people and that we did not seem to know how to respond or how to, how to care for people humanely that were suffering from the disease. Yeah. And it was still very much a death sentence. Yeah. Well, and the other bummer is that obviously they're they're more than hinting at the fact that she at least swings towards the ladies in one sense, that she's not completely straight. Rose or you know, Zelda? Uh, no, no, Zelda. Oh, no, so Zelda. Whatever that means, of course. No, no, but we... Well, it was... Because, like, remember in the doll's house, they slept together in bed and they were, like, clinging to each other naked? They did, they did, but it was this weird, like... You know, they they tried to make it this weird nuance of are they like are they actually lovers? Are they more like sisters? Are they and they did this weird back and forth thing, which I already didn't like. I just wanted them to like let them be a couple. I took it that they were a couple. I shipped yeah. them that way. I, but they I think left everybody a, a, does. like enough nuance that it was like, come on. Yeah. Yeah. But I it bums me out that she didn't even it's not like she got AIDS from sex she got aids from a kidney transplant no 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 so it was uh i think it was chantelle got it from from the kidney transplant and then gave it to zelda well that's fucked up too then yeah so i think so it just it sucks that they made it like a gay thing that the that aids had to be associated with them being gay that was like the only 
That was the thing that bothered me. They could have had any other character die from AIDS, but they had to make it like the fucking two gay women. You know, and it just it feels clumsy because it, it feels like kind of a just a thing that's sort of thrown out there and not really addressed. And the other thing is that we haven't seen Zelda and Chantel since the doll's house. Like, exactly. I don't know. I feel like at the time, this was probably groundbreaking and thoughtful. And it was Neil Gaiman trying to be an ally in a way that he thought he was, where he's showing just how this disease can hit people who haven't engaged in the behavior that they've been told is risky, that it's hitting people that don't quote unquote deserve it. Because that was the thing was AIDS back then. It was very much part of a moral panic where, you know, if you found out that someone had AIDS, it would be like, well, what kind of behavior were they engaging in? And it was, there was this whole moral relativism or a sense of moral superiority whenever you were talking about someone who had HIV or AIDS. And I don't know. I, when I look at stories that deal with that from that time, I rarely sit there and think, oh, you know, that's a... You know, that was handled pretty well. There's a few. There's like an early 90s movie, I think, called Long Term Partner that's just absolutely fucking heartbreaking. But Mm. Pose, the new series on FX that just wrapped up recently, Mm. that Mm -hmm. also deals with the AIDS epidemic. But it's also, you know, yeah. But yeah, when it's when it's a bunch of, you know, straight white guys that are writing about this stuff, it uh, it often feels pretty clumsy. Yeah. Even if they're trying to do things right. Yeah. Yeah. So we also find out in this scene that Rose doesn't seem to look like she's aging at all. Mm-hmm. So Zelda falls asleep briefly while Rose is tidying her space up and tells Rose that her grandmother has a message for her and to go back to where she lived, specifically to where she used to sleep, and that if she went, she would get back her heart. Mm-hmm. So cut back to Morpheus, who is showing the new Corinthian around and introducing him to his new life. He's trying to get a grip on who he is and what place he has in this world. And it's clear that there is a path forged for him, but there is already the looming fear of disappointing Morpheus and the threat of being uncreated like his predecessor. The very first thing that Morpheus tasks the Corinthian with is to find a certain child. And we all know that that means Daniel. We now turn to the fairy realm, where Nuala has returned and is meeting with Queen Titania, who is quite passive-aggressive and body-shamey about how Nuala has glamoured herself. She says that Nuala was never supposed to stay in the dreaming forever, and she hoped that she didn't have that impression, but, like, that was literally what Cluricant said. Honestly, that was. It was super gaslight. Oh, yeah. It was totally shady. was. Are you kidding me? Oh, my God. I hated it. I hated that whole scene. It made me so uncomfortable. I mean, I gotta be honest, like, every scene in Fairy I thought was just such a waste of our time. I don't understand why Neil Gaiman decided to make Fairy such a thing in this volume. And it, I don't know either. And, you know, it's funny because the Books of Magic, which we've talked about, Fairy is a huge thing. And there, there's major ties to the main character very early on. And honestly, I feel like we could have cut all of the subplots with Fairy and with Nuala and Clarican, and things would have been so much better paced and it would have made a lot more sense and i don't know (laughs) you know i mean i gotta say like a big thing is um i don't know it 
it doesn't matter. I mean, we're not Neil Gaiman. We're not getting paid to write this stuff. We're just armchair quarterbacking it. Yep. So, Noel is crying, and a Bogart flies over to her once the queen has gone and starts telling her a poem, but she cuts him off and tells him to beat it. So back with Lita, she has a few snakes grown out of her head at this point, and she's saying goodbye to the sisters, who state they are and always will be there, and lament her not wanting to join them. Back in reality, Carla is at the police station looking for info on Lita. She finds that there are no detectives matching the description she gives them, and they don't seem very quick to help her, since her story was a little hard to believe at face value. As she's tearily leaving the precinct, a man shouts that he saw her friend, and that she had snakes in her hair and wasn't alone in her head anymore. Carla goes back to Lita's house and finds the crumpled photo of the charred toddler's remains. But the picture alters in her hand, and changing from burnt to just a smiling picture of a perfectly healthy Daniel, which then says her name out loud, and then combusts in her hand, which burned most of the lower part of her arm. Yeah, and I wasn't sure if that was part of the whole phoenix feather thing, where Daniel was holding it and then got burnt. I don't know. It, I don't know. It, it's another clue that things are not what they seem throughout this whole story. Exactly. Rose hears Carla screaming and comes to see what's going on, and she helps patch Carla up, and they start to have a conversation about believing in what Rose refers to as weird shit, and reveals that she's going to England to talk to her grandmother, who has been dead for four years. Lita is still wandering around in reality all her own. She looks at her reflection in a shop window and sees two of herself instead of one, and in her mind there are three of herself. But the snakes on her head keep getting in her face, and she doesn't know which of the three versions of herself she is. So she tears off a piece of the bottom of her already torn up and grungy t-shirt to make herself a headband to keep the snakes from falling in her face. We then see Carla, who runs into the quote-unquote detective that had come by the place, and asks where Lita is. He tells her to get into the car and to throw the keys in the back and she could get them after they talked. Well, the fake detective, who was actually Loki, did most of the talking and the conversation ended in a fiery death for Carla. Loki magic the car to erupt into flames, which engulfed Carla. And that's that moment where you're like, oh, okay, so this is weird shit just coming out to bug all these mortals again. Yep, pretty much. Part six has Rose traveling to and arriving at the facility where her grandmother, Unity Kincaid, had spent most of her life asleep, and where she says she's gathering info for a book she's writing about her grandmother. While there, she again meets three women, but instead of being in the broom closet, one of them finds her when she comes out from looking in the broom closet, which was pretty funny. Yeah. And she's taken into a rec room where they join two other older women sitting in easy chairs. They tell her a story about a hateful cheating man who kills his wife and then is killed by his flying children. And she asks a little bit about her grandmother, but they really only tell her that her name was Sleeping Beauty and that she was just asleep all the time. She also meets the head of the facility, who had been there for years. He also remembers her grandmother in the very same description and takes Rose to meet his partner, who had fallen asleep the same day that Unity had woken up. 
Yeah, I actually really like that twist where we find out who his partner was. Yeah. Yeah, so the cool thing about this, and I thought it was, again, that moment of nice symmetry is it's revealed that this man's partner was Alex Burgess, who was the son of Roderick Burgess, the guy who imprisoned Dream for 80 years. And Alex kept him imprisoned and was wheedling him and trying to like get him to agree to grant him some favors in exchange for his freedom. But, you know, and then he had been cursed with an eternity of basically nightmares of waking up and then having them not be real. Yeah, that was a really good twist that that he was in the same place. It made me feel so much more sorry for his character because this is the first time that we really see the impact of the sleeping disease and how how it affects the people that surround those who are cursed with it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was a really sad situation. Yeah. So Rose gives a ring that used to belong to Unity to Alex, the sleeping man, for luck. Which, again, ironic because she doesn't really know the part that he has in all of this. In part seven, Lita is still living on the streets in her own reality and is picked up by someone who looks suspiciously like Thessaly, <laughs> but is calling herself Larissa. Spoiler, it is Thessaly. <laughs> yeah. No, she has that same, like, I take no bullshit kind of attitude. Yeah. And she still wears her the same glasses. And the only thing she's done is cut her hair shorter. Yeah. But there's no mistaking her. So in the dream realm, Odin has figured out that Loki is on the loose and that Morpheus had a hand in it and is rightfully mad and disappointed and leaves in a burst of flames when he goes to see Morpheus at his castle. I, I really enjoy that Odin just does not give a shit about the fact that he is talking to an entity that is older and arguably more powerful than him. He's just like, I am disappointed in you, and I used to think you were my friend. Yeah, no, Daddy, Daddy Odin. It was very much disappointed Daddy Odin. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> Delirium is still looking for Barnabas, the sort of dog, and goes to see Destiny for his aid in finding him. And while there, she sees that the statue of Morpheus has his hands on his face, and when Delirium asks if she should go help him or go try to cheer him up, Destiny seems to give her conflicting responses at the same time as she sees him in double. That might also just be Delirium. <laughs> it Who doesn't, might be... She probably doesn't quite know what's going on. Well, right, but later, I think it's later on, I can't remember if it happens before or after, but Destiny has already seen a double of himself in his garden. Oh, he has. No, he has to that point, yeah. Maybe it's his other one. Yeah, so, and that's the thing is, my take on that was that there were these multiple Destiny beings that were manifesting throughout the garden, and then I think that they were representing possible futures. Okay. That makes sense. That was my take. I don't know if I read that right. No, but but that makes a lot more sense than the disconnected bullshit my mind was trying to tell me. Yeah, so. but the but the <laughs> idea being, it's like they were kind of at this this sort of nexus point where things could go in any number of ways, and that's why, like later on, we see dozens of destinies all yeah walking through, and they've all got their own books. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a wild scene, too. I liked that. So Thessaly is doing some witchy shit, including killing a baby goat, which, like, yikes, <laughs> and performs protection spells on Leta. Morpheus heads over to Fiddler's Green, where even there the sky is dark and cloudy. So obviously something is afoot. Leta falls into the dream realm where she once again run into the sisters, but this time they are three instead of two, and Lita recognizes them as the Furies, which it turns out they don't really like being called that for sexism reasons, which I appreciate. I like how they were like, why is it only ladies who get furious? Hmm? Why is that? <laughs> yeah, and it's it's one of those things where I think the reason that there's that connection between them is because again, that, that Greek mythology connection and the fact that she used to call herself Fury and they were also calling her daughter in one of her dreams, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. She asks them to help her avenge the death of her husband and son, but the women state that they can't seek revenge for the death of Daniel. They would only be able to seek revenge if the perpetrator had killed his own son, which they follow that up with stating that oh wait morpheus had in fact killed his own son glimmer mm -hmm. so part eight follows morpheus going through a week's worth of like work for him in the dream realm and includes a visit from the kindly ones who are also now lita hall who are mm -hmm. looking for revenge for the death of morpheus's son slash lita's looking for revenge for the death of her own son really and they threaten to destroy all of the dream realm making their threat real by killing the griffin who guards the gate. Oh, God, that scene, man. God. Like, it just, I, there's a few things in fiction that I just, I can't stand. And it's like cruelty to animals, it's cruelty to kids, mm -hmm. and it's cruelty to mm -hmm. old people. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. you know, we talked about this in a previous episode about how I really had a tough time with the death of Martin Tenbones. And, yeah. you know, and, and how much it reminded me of when I had to take my dog in to be put down. I don't know. It's just any time that something like that happens and they they always seem to have that moment of like confused betrayal and the Griffin had that and I was I was legit mad. Like I I get mad every time I read that scene. Like it elicits a, a genuine emotional response from me. I was mad too. I got a little teary eyed because I wasn't expecting it. Yeah. So back in England, Rose Walker ends up sleeping with the solicitor, and he's uh, very probably married, so that's a bummer. <laughs> and at the end of this part, they held a funeral for the Griffin. Yeah. Which, and I, I, again. I don't know. Whatever. Like, anyway. <laughs> I just I, I don't just... know why they needed to make that throwaway bit about her just having this throwaway relationship with this dude. It just was dumb. I, I gotta be honest, I don't really think that the whole side plot with Rose really felt like it was going anywhere or went anywhere, really. Uh, like, e even the I bit at the end. I agree. No. Like, the whole, the whole bit where she, like, hangs out with Desire, I'm like, I don't care. No, same. Yeah, we will get to it. We could talk about how little we care. Or, yeah. or maybe we, we don't care that much. Maybe we don't care. <laughs> All right, next. <laughs> 
So part nine starts with Rose going back to the manor house and meeting with the head of staff. And she wanders down into a hidden room. And here we go. That part we don't care about. She's met by Desire. And Desire tells her that it is her grandfather. We need to backtrack a sec because it's part nine is where she's brought to the manor house where Dream was imprisoned. Oh, is that where they go? Yeah, because when she goes downstairs, she's... I didn't understand that. No, so that... Okay, so I'm going to I'm gonna break this down and then we can rephrase it. Do it. Do it. So she No, is... just, just explain it for the pod. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the manor house where, where the Burgesses summoned and then imprisoned Dream for a long time. Okay, okay. And so Alex's partner is living in like the gardener's cabin, shed, something like that. It's like he he describes it as his own bachelor pad, basically. And then he tours Rose around and he's showing her everything. And then he mentions about how the basement is like kind of weird and has some interesting stuff. And there's a light and she can go down. And that's when she meets Desire. And then I don't know. I just it, it feels like something that's very dramatic, but it also doesn't really deliver the payoff that I was hoping for. I And I don't know what I was hoping for out of this, but there's no payoff to it. No, no. Desire basically just explains having impregnated unity and that there wasn't anything like physical going on with like semen or whatever. It's like, dude, I don't really care. Like you can sit here and justify it, but you still like without consent used somebody's body while they were asleep to form a baby. Yeah, you took away their agency. Yeah. Like, they never had the agency. Yeah, I don't care if it was rape or not. I I give zero fucks. It was still a form of assault, regardless of how it actually physically happened. Yeah, 100%. So, I'm obviously very angry about it, so. I don't quite understand the point that Neil Gaiman was trying to make, but it feels very clumsy. And again, we're looking at this with the perspective of being 30 years in the future from when this was written. Yes, and being a woman. <laughs> well, <laughs> on my side, at least. I was going to say, I am. <laughs> I don't have that perspective, but <laughs> no, but yeah. at least half of us do. <laughs> so when the guy comes back to check on her, she says she must have fallen asleep because she dreamt of a strange androgynous person. And then the man finds this heart lighter and hands it back to Rose, assuming it was hers, but it was really desires when desire was sitting there chain smoking cigarettes yeah so matthew and the corinthian are looking for daniel still and come across someone pretending to be morpheus who then pretends to be a few other things before it's revealed that he is loki the corinthian knocks out loki and has a quippy line about wanting to see through a god's eyes and the kindly ones go and kill gilbert aka fiddler's green and someone called matthew back to the dream realm but Morpheus was not the one who called him, which that's already kind of a deviation from how things normally work to begin with. Yeah. And again, there's a lot of whiplash back and forth where we're getting pulled from one area to another without it feeling like it's making a lot of sense. Yeah, I feel like a lot of this stuff, especially with Rosa's visit, could have been chunked together and maybe cut down a little bit. Oh, yeah, 100 percent. I don't know that we needed to see all this extraneous bullshit on her part. So Morpheus goes to see Thessaly, a.k.a. Larissa, and he's looking to kill Lita. So and of course, since Lita's at Thessaly's house, that's that's the reason he goes there. It's revealed that the kindly ones traded more life to Larissa in order to keep Lita safe. 
So she's in a protection circle like the one Morpheus was kept in. So if he goes in to kill Lita, he won't be able to get out again. So he leaves super pissed and passive aggressively like blows out her windows on his way out, which was just like, okay, guy. So at Fiddler's Green, another raven just named Raven, because he's the OG, he was Noah's raven, is casually plucking out Gilbert's eye. Matthew does not partake, but realizes that he and the other previous ravens have been called back because there is going to be a war, and a lot of corpses that need to be taken care of. Meanwhile, the Corinthian has removed Loki's eyes and has found Daniel. Part 10. We're almost done. (laughs) I know. Guys, we're almost there. (laughs) So in part 10, Loki is still alive and the Corinthian refuses to kill him. Odin rolls up and is like, perfect. We've got your torture cave ready for you. And then he just puts him into it. Yep. Abel is killed by the kindly ones, as is Mervyn. Nuala ran away, but ran into Delirium, who's still looking for Barnabas. And she helps Delirium think of where she might have last seen Barnabas, which seemed to be a solution that she had not thought of just yet. Rose is going back to the U.S. after her trip to see Unity's sleeping place, and Nuala decides to use her boon and calls Morpheus, who is like, wow, Nuala, I know I said I'd do this for you, but it's super inconvenient right now. Mm-hmm. And Nuala insists that she wants to use her boon right then. So... He appears in fairy to her, and she expresses her concern for him and the fact that he was being targeted by the kindly ones. And he said, you know, honestly, as long as I had stayed in the dreaming, I would have been safe. To which Nuala replies that, well, you're not in the dreaming any longer. And he goes, no, I'm not. So, yeah, obviously shit's going to go down. So part 11 has the Corinthian reaching the dreaming with Daniel and running into Cain, who is very shaken up after the seemingly real death of his brother, and tells the Corinthian the drama unfolding in that realm with the kindly ones. They take refuge in the castle to wait for Morpheus to return. In the waking world, Rose Walker returns to find that Zelda has passed away while she was gone. She takes care of her final expenses and takes the chocolates and flowers that she had brought intending to give to Zelda and gives them to a man sitting in an alley. It's also revealed that Barnabas is with this man and ready to help him eat those delightful chocolates. Which, no! (laughs) (laughs) Enough with the dogs and the chocolates. (laughs) I I know he's a special doggy. I still really wonder if Neil Gaiman just, like, never had a dog and didn't know better. And he was like, the dog likes chocolate. Neil, hit us up. What is with this? Come on. So we get a look at Destiny's Realm, where here, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but there are multitudes of Destinies, and they all have their own book. And I, you know, to your point, I think it's it's all these different versions of what could possibly be. Yeah, and I mean, like, I could have totally misread it, but that was my take on it. Well, no, and I mean, I think that's right, because, you know, all of the Destinies do start intertwining, and they start reducing one by one, and then reality kind of folds into what it's actually going to be. So I think you're right. I think they was just kind of all the destinies were just needing to line up in the way that they were going to go when Mm -hmm. choices were made. Yeah. Morpheus shows back up in the dreaming, 
like a supermodel hitting the fucking runway. <laughs> no, seriously. That, yes. He just is like, here I am. It's very good. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, where where he has this chariot that then is taking him back from Ferry, and it gradually turns into a flying Art Deco bullet train, and then it pulls up to the station, and he rolls out like he... Well, I mean, he does. He fucking owns the place. Like, I mean... He does, yeah. It's great. Fucking winds in his hair, and he's like, here I am, bitches. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and he's got, like, a scarf, and he looks all fabulous. It's great. God, it was so good. So, he sees the Daniels there, and the kindly ones show up, claiming the castle since he had left the Dreaming. They're basically like, you left, it's ours now. We own it. Yep. So they attack Morpheus with scorpions to the face, where he starts bleeding, which, this is the first time we've seen Morpheus actually get physically hurt before, or one of the Endless at all. Uh, yeah, I don't think we've ever actually seen them take damage before, really. Like, I mean, no, despair, despair, she's her own, like, she's always kind of like bleeding or like rats are biting her face or something like that. But yeah. like, that's not the same thing. Despair, it's more self-harm than anything else. Yes, correct. Correct. That's what it seems like, at least. So Lita also realizes that Daniel is not really dead, but he's not alive. And she turns her efforts towards trying to rescue him, in a sense. Mm -hmm. The other fates state that they do not rescue. They only serve revenge. And Morpheus states that he he needs to talk to Daniel and asks Lucian for his emerald. Lucian has similar ideas that Nuala did for Morpheus to keep on the move and avoid the sisters. But he states that he's driven by responsibility. And he also picks up his helm, so you know shit's about to go down. In part 12, Dream has spoken with Daniel about some mystery topic. He's just a baby, remember, but they had a conversation. (laughs) And he's given him the emerald Dreamstone, which contains a facet of himself. He reveals to Matthew that he doesn't expect to make it through this, and tries to send Matthew away. To which Matthew is like, sorry boss, I'm coming with you. Delirium shows up at Lucifer's club and gets in after the masked waitress tries to kick her out. Rose goes to see Hal, who is having success with a comedy CD and is on TV dressed like his alter ego, who he names Vixen. So Hal we met in the doll's house again. He was the one who was the cross-dresser. Yeah, and Hal is the one that I thought was Wanda later on because of the really gross promo text. That DC had used on the promo page on Hoopla. Yeah, so, yikes, but... Yeah. So, Hal initially refuses to go to Zelda's funeral, even though he knows Rose will be the only one there. Now, back with Delirium and Lucifer, Delirium is told she should go find her dog and to forget about helping Morpheus, since it's too late to help him. They speculate that he didn't know how to leave a place if he tried, and sometimes it just takes the power to walk away from a situation. Clerican shows up while Nuala is crying about Morpheus not loving her. Ugh, again, I fucking hate that. And she asks him to take her glamour away so that she can have her own face back for her journey, as she's planning on leaving. Morpheus and Matthew start to square off against the kindly ones, and it's revealed that Lucian is the OG Raven. 
Death came to find Morpheus, and the Corinthian advises where he is and states she can wait for him. Morpheus seems to make up his mind about something and sends Matthew back to the castle with his helm and pouch, stating that his sister would be there and to ask her to meet him where he was and that Matthew needed to wait there and not come back. Finally, we reach part 13, where Death meets up with Morpheus. At the castle, Lucian and the Corinthian and Matthew are dealing with Morpheus's prisoners that had been set free by the fates. Morpheus and Death discuss his choices to stay in the realm, to leave to see Nuala without putting blame on her as it was ultimately his choice to leave at her beckoning, and Death stating that he ultimately wanted to be punished for his choices. Nuala leaves Fairy, but not before being chewed out uh, by Titania for being ungrateful, which again, all of those interactions. Yeah. It's really interesting because later on it's revealed that Titania herself was immortal. Like, not in the Sandman series, but, like, that she was more... Oh, I was like, what? (laughs) No, it's it's really... It's interesting, though, because I have the perspective of knowing who she was when she came to Fairy, And... I don't know. It's really weird to me how... Just how Titania is... I don't know. Like, I think think the Fairy stuff just doesn't make sense, to be honest. I feel like it's... It's kind of filler. It does feel that way. For me, too. So, Delirium finds Barnabas and tells him that she can't feel her brother dream in her mind any longer. And back at the nightclub, Lucifer is closing up shop for good. At the cemetery, Rose is waiting for Zelda's service to start. And Hal actually does show up, with apologies. So, during this, Rose also reveals that she's pregnant. And then we also see that Mr. Burgess who we had been talking about before, who was asleep, he wakes up. And at Larissa's, Lita also wakes up, and she's advised to get herself cleaned up, and she needs to take the fuck off, because not only has she ensured that she won't see Daniel again, she should be concerned about folks who now want her dead due to her actions. Larissa included. Yeah, which, I mean, okay. like. She's so like vengeful for no reason. I I think she's a very one note character as well. I I I don't see much character development in Thessaly. No, she's another one of those very two dimensional characters, and she says cool stuff. She has cool moments, but she doesn't feel like she really has any depth. No, she's again a plot driver. I mean, love that. Back in the dreaming, Daniel clutches the emerald and then becomes someone else, someone older who looks a lot like Dream, but white instead of predominantly black. He's almost like an all-white statue at this point. Like, it's really interesting because it's like, it's the same general features of the Morpheus that we knew, but everything about him, he's got the white hair, he's got the white skin, he's Mm -hmm. got the white robes, and he's got the emerald as opposed to Morpheus who had his ruby. Yeah, yeah, exactly. When he's questioned about this, he states that he's no longer Daniel. And the story closes out with the kindly ones reflecting on the ending of a life that they have been spinning out of yarn, closing out Morpheus's story, and he walks away with his sister Death. Yeah, it took us a while, but we finally got to this point. And here we are. (laughs) 
So what were your overall impressions of the story and, and who are your favorite and least favorite characters or events of this volume? You know, this is a really interesting volume. It really rips along a lot of the times. And then there are other parts that just drag. Yeah. I feel like so much of Lita Hall's journey to find the Furies could have been nixed, to be honest. And I think the entire subplot about Nuala returning to Fairy and pulling Morpheus into Fairy was totally unnecessary. Mm-hmm. And we've now talked about it multiple times in this episode where it's so forgettable that I've forgotten about it after reading the series a couple of times. <laughs> You're never going to remember that Nuala exists. Let's be real. <sighs> yeah. Yeah, at the same time, I think Gaiman really loves the slow burn. I think he loves exposition and philosophy, and I think he prefers those to action scenes. Don't get me wrong, he can write action scenes really well, but I don't think he likes to if he doesn't have to. And I think that's why we saw things like the Furies destroying the Dreaming, or there's that prolonged hunt for Daniel. It was all dancing around the conflict itself. And that said, I love that this volume, this entire volume, is all about proverbial chickens coming home to roost. Like the seeds that Mm -hmm. we saw planted at the beginning of the series have taken root and grown in really interesting ways. I think Loki was such a great villain in this story. I really loved that basically he sets everything in motion just because he doesn't want to own Dream a favor for freeing him from his torture cave. Yep. I really enjoyed... The new Corinthian, too. Like, he was a great villain in the doll's house, but this time he's on the side of the angels. So instead of being this terrifying, unnerving character, he feels cool and mysterious. (laughs) It's funny because there's so much of this volume that I've just forgotten about since the last time I read it. Like, we talked about Nuala. I forgot that Rose Walker actually spends time talking to Hal. There's so much going on in this book, and it's so easy to forget stuff the further you get from it. And I also keep thinking about just what an incredibly tragic figure Lita is. She's just had tragedy heaped on her over and over again throughout this entire series. And it's funny because she eventually does get a happy ending, but it's over in the pages of JSA, which is DC's Justice Society comic that they were doing back in the aughts, back in, I think, 2008, which is that she, it's her and a resurrected Hector Hall gets stranded on this freezing mountain and Daniel shows up as the new Morpheus and basically offers to take their spirits into the dreaming forever, but they can never go back to the real world. And so they take Ah. him up on it and they, you know, eventually the family is reunited and it's a nice moment, but it kind of bums me out that we don't get anything really quite like that here. Yeah. Yeah, no, there isn't really so much of a resolution. It's just like, well, you're never going to see him again, and that's all you get. And that's, as a mother, that must be really difficult. So that didn't feel great. Yeah. Yeah. I think it sounds like you feel, in a lot of ways, very similar to me. I think we have a a Venn diagram of perspectives (laughs) this this time around. We do, but I I also have a soft spot for Mervyn, (laughs) the pumpkin head. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. He's just so sociable and he like thrives on attention. He's loud mouthed and opinionated. And listen, I relate hard to Merv. Well, yeah, he's the guy. He's the guy who goes around the castle and gets shit done and then grouses all the time. Yep. (laughs) I mean, yep. That sounds like both of us. This sounds like like how we interact with each other. 
we does, just go about it? our business and then grouse to each other about our like daily lives. Oh my at god! Work. Well, usually work. I was gonna say. <laughs> I remember there were a couple of months where I was just sitting there venting to you on almost a daily basis about how garbage my job had gotten. <laughs> oh my gosh! The other thing I really like about Merv is that he constantly puts his foot in his mouth, which hard same. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> I've definitely been in a situation where I I've been talking about someone and they end up behind me or like around and I'm just like fuck. And he does that a couple of times where yeah. he's just like running his mouth and, and Morpheus, Morpheus like shows there. up behind him and is like what's that? <laughs> yeah, it's good. <laughs> oh. I'm a little torn on the kindly ones. Like, I get that they have the ability to punish Morpheus for killing his son, but it just seems like they had no other facets than vengeance once that ball started rolling. And no gray area, which was interesting, because Orpheus had ultimately made his decision and no longer wanted to live. And he had asked for that. So, I, I don't know. It just, it felt a little forced, this turn of justice. And I thought it a bit strange that the kindly ones all of a sudden had the power to destroy the dreaming. Are they the check and balance for the endless? Is that kind of what's going on here? Well, like, but they didn't actually kill him because it was death that ultimately took Morpheus. So I I don't no, know. No, but they were pulling apart the dreaming and they had a lot of power over the actual dreaming, yeah. which was really random to me. Yeah, Felt I don't random. know. I like it's not well explained. This is all like the armchair quarterbacking but I get the feeling that Neil Gaiman was like, I have this idea and it, and basically like it's a cool plot device, but I feel like he didn't quite flesh out this plot device as an actual series of characters. And as a result, it's a little, <laughs> it's a little hard to understand why it's happening. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably what I'm feeling. It's a good way to put it. Did you have a favorite art moment in this volume? Oh yeah. So. We already talked about it. Tell me about it. Yeah, but you remember that bit where Morpheus is returning from the dreaming and off the train Mm -hmm. and the page where he steps off and walks back into his castle. It's almost Mm -hmm. a full page spread Mm -hmm. of him just looking fucking fabulous. Like it's bright and it's colorful and it's dramatic as hell. I really loved that because I feel like we haven't gotten that many moments like that with Morpheus. There have been a few where he kind of floats into the underworld and he's like very billowy and he's like, here the fuck I am, Lucifer. Well, yeah, but like, you know, he steps off and he's got this kind of like art deco suit with a cape that's got flames on the end of it and a scarf (laughs) and (laughs) thigh high (laughs) boots. And it's so great because it's him sitting there and saying, I have returned and I am afraid that I must apologize (laughs) for the delay. And I'm like, yes, queen. Like, do you remember the show in Living Color where they had men on film? Yes. And they would do yep. they would do they would do that like snap thing that I was like, mm, yeah, no, I I I feel like this is an appropriate yep. moment. Yep, yep. <laughs> so that was art that was done by Mark Hempel. It's really interesting because his style is very different than a lot of the stuff that we've seen in the series, but his art style works really really well and the coloring was done by daniel vazo and it's a really great contrast it's lots of really dramatic shadows and very solid colors and it works really well in this in the just in general it works really well and i really enjoyed all of the issues that had these two working together 
Stop it. That was exactly what I was going to talk about. Like oh, really? I was digging all of Mark Hempel's artwork. Like that is exactly it. Like everything he did. There was this situation in the ninth part where Dream had passive aggressively or in Thessaly's words, childishly broken out all of her windows as he was leaving. And there was this great panel where Thessaly is shown from the collarbone up in the center of the frame and there's shattered glass all around her blowing in from each side. Yeah, and the that curtains was good. are all blowing in too. And Thessaly is just in the middle of it and her eyes are wide and her hair is flying. And it's just, you could feel the movement. It was amazing. It's very cinematic in the way that it's framed it and that the action is depicted and everything. And we get so many great moments like that. Well, and what was great about it, too, is that it's the first panel of a newly turned page. So that's the surprise we get is like we turn the page and there's an explosion. Yeah. So that was a really neat effect, because as the reader, we are just surprised as Thessaly is in this situation because she didn't expect that and neither did we. Yeah. And I mean, like, that's the same thing with that moment with Dream coming off the train is it's the next page after after a series of small panels. And it feels very much like that moment in a movie where the hero has gotten beaten down and was on his back foot and then has gotten juiced up. Yeah. And we get that and we get that full view of him. And it's like, oh, he's back and he's going to deliver a righteous ass whooping. Which yeah. I mean, we, we don't quite get that, but but it felt like that. <laughs> and even though I knew where this was going, like I still got that little thrill again because it's just it's such a delightful moment. It totally is. Yeah. So that's volume nine. Do you have any final thoughts before we wrap up? I don't, you know, it's interesting because this volume is almost a fifth of the issues of the Sandman. Yeah. I realized that once I started to get into this and was like, holy fuck, what's happening right now? Yeah. I, I think about how there were, you know, a few years ago, there was a thing about how they were talking about types of writers. They were talking about like the gardeners and the architects. And then the other way I've heard it also explained is pantsers, as in writing by the seat of their pants, and plotters. And I feel like Neil Gaiman is a pantser. I feel like the idea is that he just kind of lets things go, and then he continues to kind of write through it. And so you get some really wonderful moments, that, but the plot doesn't move along at a, a steady pace. And the kindly ones, the momentum is all over the place. Ugh. Yeah. And I, I feel like this is a volume where they really should have just axed some stuff. And it honestly seems like you could have cut out all the fairy stuff. You could have cut out Noala, but you didn't need to remove Morpheus from the Dreaming and then bring him back. None of that, no. Most of the Rose Walker stuff, I feel like it didn't really have much of a payout either. We I know did never find out, like, the reason, like, getting her heart back or, like, what did she just never age again yes she's pregnant she's gonna have a kid but like is she gonna start aging again like what the fuck happened with that well i think that might actually be what it is is that because she's pregnant she's becoming a mother and she's getting a reason to live or something like that um jesus fucking christ oh my god because we see her later on in in the wake and and she's like excited about being a mom and she's talking to her brother I feel like a lot of that was really unnecessary. I did like that we got that moment where we see Alex with his partner and he's still asleep. Yeah. I liked that. But yeah, most of Rose Walker's thing I didn't really care about. And sometimes you just got to kill your darlings. Yeah. Yep. 
Yeah, or just not bring him back into the storyline if you don't fucking need to. Well, yeah, and that was the whole thing. Hal's presence was unnecessary. Honestly, mm-hmm. if it was Zelda dying, I feel like we could have cut that whole thing and we would have been better off without it. I gave zero fucks. I hate to say it, but I gave zero fucks that Zelda died. Yeah, I mean, like, that was the other thing, was that in the doll's house, like, Zelda and Chantel were not really a big part of it. Like, they were not characters that we cared about other than we were like, oh, they're kind of these cool goth chicks. Like, that's neat. These, like, quirky goth chicks who, like, stuffed spiders. Like, that's cool. Like, that's fine. But, like, we didn't, there was nothing that pulled the reader into them. Yeah. Because they they felt like throwaway characters. And so the fact that they were coming back, I had to be like, oh, Zelda from a doll's house? Okay. Yeah. I'm honestly surprised that Barbie didn't come back because we got an entire volume with Barbie. Yeah. What the fuck ever happened to Barbie after that? Mm -hmm. We don't know. We don't fucking know. Yeah. You know what, dude? What do you say we move on to our brain wrinkles? Yeah, I'm down. Awesome. Well, we have reached our brain wrinkles, which is that one thing, comics or comics adjacent, that we just can't seem to get out of our heads. Mike, what is it for you this week? Uh, You go first. (laughs) Okay. Well, in the vein of our main topic, I actually just read that there is going to be a new reprint of the Sandman series ahead of the Netflix series that's coming out. Oh, of course out. there fucking is. Of course there is, right? <laughs> of course there is. Uh, <laughs> so you want to throw some money down? Here's the info. So it's going to be in four parts instead of ten volumes, like mm. the 30th edition that that you and I picked up. So. Yeah. It's also going to have new covers that more closely follow the vibe of the upcoming show. So, listeners, if you're interested in picking up this reprint, it's going to be coming out in four softcover books starting on April 5th, 2022 with book one, which contains issues number one through 20. So for us, it's the first three volumes. There's a full schedule already out. I'm not going to bore us by going through all of it, but the books are being dropped every two weeks with May 17 being book four's release. Man, they're really betting on that Netflix show. And I know that Neil Gaiman has been very involved with it and they've got a really kick-ass cast, but I really hope it doesn't suck. Yeah, me too. I mean, I'm curbing my expectations, but... After Cowboy Bebop, man, that, uh... (laughs) See, I didn't partake. I didn't either, and I just know that everybody fucking hated it. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. So, we'll see. I don't know, like, fingers crossed. Like, you know, at the same time, The Witcher is great, so. Yeah, I'm probably going to sit and I need to de freaking I was going to do some other podcast work after this, but I think I'm going to watch more of The Witcher because I need to take my brain away from this fucking Sandman series for a minute. No, go go enjoy The Witcher. Go watch Henry Cavill swing a sword around. Watch him, uh, you know, watch him give us a preview of what we're going to get from him in Highlander. Oh, 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 sorry. I'm just so excited. I love Highlander so much. Stupid. I love it. You'd never know listening to the show that we have a passion for Highlander. I know. Highlander and Ninja Turtles. I definitely have like, (laughs) I have a niche. Yeah. So what about you though, dude? It's not quite comics related, but it's show related. So um, we, we bought a house for Black Friday and I was just thinking about how this is the last episode that I am recording in this house and in particularly this closet of Sarah's. And it's really kind of shocking to see a, that we have recorded this much content because this is episode 23, but also just how far, how far we have come 
in less than a year with this show and how much fun this has been. And I uh, I did not expect this to come out of COVID lockdowns, but it's been a blast so far. And I'm really glad that we started this. And I'm really glad to have the people listening that have been listening and, and the support that we have had from both listeners and other podcasts. And it's been a really great ride so far. And we're not stopping it anytime soon. So no. Yeah, no, this has felt, you know, this has felt really personally successful, I yeah. think, and and starting out with this. And I it has a lot to do with people supporting us. And so definitely thank you to everybody who has been listening and and downloading and reviewing. And I mean, it's it's nice just to know that people are listening and checking us out. But the fact that we have so much support is just like, I always show Mike our downloads and I'm like, oh my God, Mike, look. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, and you know, I mean, I like my in-laws listen to the show and they tell me about how much they enjoy it. And special shout out to Sarah Frank, my partner, who has done a bunch of art for us. Go check her out on Instagram. Look, mom draws all one word. She makes such fun and cute stuff. I mean, follow her just for the cuteness. Yeah, it's very good. And yeah, you know, it's just it's been it's been a blast. So if you're listening to this, thank you so much for just sticking with us. And we hope you've enjoyed the show and continue to enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great segue for our outro. Yeah, I think so too. Thanks for listening to 10 Cent Takes. Accessibility is important to us, so text transcriptions of each of our published episodes can be found on our website. This episode was hosted by Jessica Frazier and Mike Thompson. Written by Jessica Frazier and edited by Mike Thompson. Our intro theme was written and performed by Jared Emerson Johnson of Bay Area Sound. Our credits and transition music is Pursuit of Life by Evan McDonald and was purchased with a standard license from Premium Beat. Our banner graphics were designed by Sarah Frank, who goes by Look Mom Draws on Instagram. If you'd like to get in touch with us, ask us questions, or tell us about how we got something wrong, please head over to TencentTakes.com or shoot an email to TencentTakes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter. The official podcast account is Tencent Takes. Jessica is Jessica Witha, and Jessica is spelled with a K. And Mike is Van Sau, V-A-N-S-A-U. You'd like to support us? Be sure to download, rate, and review wherever you listen. Stay safe out there. And support your local comic shop.